This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Kick out the jams, motherfuckers. This is Wayne Kramer from the MC5, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios present Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here, behind the mic in the San Francisco studios today. Thank you once again for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. So, everyone has been telling their friends, and we very much appreciate it. Please, please continue. Also, if you are so inclined, consider reviewing our podcast on iTunes or wherever you currently listen. Okay, that's it for today, so let's get right to it. One of the true metal gods for you diggers. Today we spend time with K.K. Downing and talk about his new book, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest. Mr. Downing was one of the two lead guitarists in the band from its inception until 2011 when he left the band for a variety of reasons that we will touch on today. And just in case you were unfamiliar with one of the originators of metal... The other guys are Ian Hill on bass, Glenn Tipton, the other lead guitarist, and of course Rob Halford on vocals. There were a myriad of drummers over their long history. My point is that when the dust settles and the history of Judas Priest is complete, those four names are the core and will remain in the history books as defining this uh, influential band. KK was at the beginning. But it doesn't look like he'll make the finish line, and the book is a lot about that. I would not call this a settling of scores or a tell-all. 
It's a fair description of the history of one man in a very real Dickensian rags-to-riches story. Most of the tales are good times. A lot of brotherly love and taking the rock world by storm one step at a time. But with any family, there are nitpicks and squabbles. Little molehills that over time, left unaddressed, become unassailable mountains. And of course, there is 40 years of music. <laughs> Lots of detail on the albums and tours. Judas Priest is a very influential band. Uh, they hail from the UK West Midlands, where industrial grit gave birth to a few early metal goth rockers. But to me, they're a great story of evolution to uniquely define themselves and make some pretty great pop songs to boot. Looking back at the inception of Priest and their obvious roots are certainly Sabbath, Purple, and Zeppelin. But each early album continually moves to something heavier and defining all their own. Certainly, by the time they get to British Steel, where sound and vision are finally solidified, they are the poster child for what has been dubbed the new wave of heavy metal that went on to produce the dark children of trash, speed, and death metal. Uh, metal gods indeed. Okay, let's raise the devil horns and put the electric eye on K.K. Downing. Welcome to Deeper Dicks in Rock, KK Downing. How are you doing today? Christian, I'm absolutely great. Thank you very much. Great to speak to you. Yeah, it's really nice to uh, to talk to uh, you know one of the greatest guitar players uh, of the rock and roll era. Um, here's my first question. So you, you open your book, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest, with the 1990 civil trial in Reno, Nevada in where supposed subliminal messages in the Judas Priest songs, Better By You, Better Than Me, and I believe Beyond the Realms of Death. Um, to, to us, this is one of the most significant moments in rock and roll when it comes to backlash, or more correctly, what we call moral panic. So my question is, would you consider this perhaps the most surreal moment in your life? Well, I think it's... Um... It, it was very, very important, as you say, Christian. Um, the book starts off really, um, you know, with that particular topic, and um, and I have been asked why the book started with that. And as you quite rightly say, I think it, not just for myself uh, or for the band, but uh, but for but for our genre of music, you know that. Uh, was pretty much under a fierce attack, really, at that point, you know, in different places in the world. And, um, well, it I mean, had been for a while. I mean, like the uh, yeah. PM PMRC a few years earlier, uh, you know, I think uh, you guys were fingered uh, in, the, in the Congressional Wives uh, uh, period as well. 
I think exactly because I mean, even though as kind of ridiculous as we thought it was, I mean, it did end up actually in a court of law, you know, for four whole weeks, and it was quite, um, it was, it was quite, um, you know, uh, a time in our lives. Um, and like I say, it could have been life-changing for myself, the band, and for our music, and, and obviously for a lot of fans out there if um, if things had have gone a different way, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. But I was, I, so it was a very, very important for for everyone. I think everyone out there listening would, would agree, really, that, um, that something had to happen um, to extinguish this, this flame that was, um, you know, tracking us seemingly tracking us guys down you know um um but obviously the end result was was well, mostly, mostly, let's, let's face it mostly religious zealots in uh, in this country uh i, I don't think you experienced uh, this uh, outside of the united states no not so much no um definitely because i can remember for example in the early 70s i mean when we would uh, in the 70s we would be out there with with bands like Kiss, for example, on tour, and we would go through certain regions, and there would be, you know, um, people outside oh, the kind of, kind of yeah, yeah, protesting yeah. and stuff like that. But you know, other areas, it was it was great. It was just full of fans, you know. But you go through certain areas. So, um, but we went through that. But we weren't the only only band to experience that. But um, well, you were the only band to be sued. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. For 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 <laughs> which which again, what uh, as you bring up in the book, uh, what were they going to actually charge you? And now this was a civil suit, but in the end, what what would they charge you guys? Uh, you know, murder or something? It's just it was it yeah. was just ridiculous. But I, you know, I, I, I actually can't answer that question. I don't think they actually <laughs> ever said. I think that's why we were all all as nervous as we were. Really, we thought, yeah. what 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 is going to happen here? You know, I mean. Um, I really don't know. You give a great contrast between driving up to the courthouse with a large group of priest fans waiting outside to cheer you on and then walking into a serious court environment after the door closes. But I have to know, did you guys really fear this would result in a guilty verdict? Well, like I say, it was a worse nightmare thinking about it. But, you know, um... It, it, it just goes to show you that people can make um, an argument or a, a case out of nothing, really, you know. Um, but uh, it was just a bizarre experience. I'm glad we came through. It was, it was, was very important, as I say, not just for myself, but for, for all and sundry, really, um, that, uh, that that thing was quashed. And, uh, and, and as far as I know... Uh, hasn't reared its ugly head again since. No, no, it pretty much died out uh, uh, with that, uh, and uh, maybe some other targets uh, were were picked. Uh, but I don't think we've seen uh, quite an example of uh, a backlash and moral panic uh, like we did uh, at that point. Um, so, have have you ever seen the documentary Dream Deceivers? And and I don't blame you if you hadn't. It's very tough to watch. Obviously, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't Judas Priest's music, backmasked or whatever you, you want to say, caused the kids to do this uh, this horrible action. But have you thought about what what maybe caused those kids to do such a horrible thing to themselves? Yeah, I think um, 
like I say, um, I can relate because obviously in the book it does kind of, uh, it, it's quite explicit really about my upbringing and from yeah. a working class background and, yeah. and it was tough for me as a kid and, and it was a very kind of, uh, you know, uh, disconnected kind of So you can relate space. with two kids. Yeah, yeah, and and you can kind of see. I mean, the one guy's parents uh, had got five divorces between them, you know, and stuff like that. And uh, and um, you can see that they went through a similar sort of things. Those youngsters, you know, it was uh, an uh, abundance of you know drugs and alcohol and different things, and it was just a very uh, you know a disconnected family situation for those young guys, and and they too. Um, and that's kind of what, the, what I kind of like about the book is the fact that I was that teenager, really, that was kind of not knowing where I was going or what I was doing. But I found salvation through the the the, uh, the avenue of music, and um, you know. But not everyone not everyone's been able to find um, a salvation like I did, you know. Um, and so obviously the book kind of goes through that. I kind of morphed from this, this teenage kind of delinquent kind of guy that's, you know, got nothing going, you know, for him. Um, but, um, and then, and then I get to be in one of, you know, one of the greatest bands, you know, in the world. And, um, and, and so it's, it's amazing what can happen, you know, if you, uh, if you try hard and you find something that you really do want to do and just stick at it, you know. Um, so I guess there's some 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 pretty some some pretty a cool messages. There. Yeah, I, I see that. Yeah. And, and as you said, getting to the band wasn't easy. You had a pretty rough go of it growing up in uh, West Bromwich, uh, which is just north of Birmingham for our listeners. Um, you know, we've spoken to several rockers uh, whose early years were a part of the rationing and rebuilding after World War II. I assume you had to go through some of that yourself. So tell us a little bit about that 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 upbringing, which was very difficult. Yeah, it was. It was um, as, you, as you quite rightly say, I was actually born, you know, five to six years after the war. So when people were sleeping on the ground and like say food was scarce and everything so it was it was very archaic really um back in the day you know there was no such thing as uh contraceptive pills and stuff like that and it was just you know um uh, my mom and dad got together she got pregnant he didn't want it forced marriage and so it all starts there doesn't it really mm. um and then nowhere to live, nowhere to go. And in those days, you had to have two children before you could get any community housing or get on the list for community housing. Yeah, the old council right. Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, my sister was born first, and then I was, and after a time, you know, just roughing it, really, you know, um, going back and forth between his parents, her parents. Um, it was was tough, but my parents were always, uh, uh, you know, at loggerheads. There was always angst and 
and problems, you know. Um, but Dad was a gambler. Yeah, you know, pretty, pretty serious gambler, it appears. Them, yeah, he was spending the money that way. He didn't drink and he didn't smoke, but he had some phobias and uh, and and things. It was uh, so... It was very odd, and as a kid, you don't realize for a while, and then no, you start. No, it's just to... your life. You're just, <laughs> yeah. just the way it is. As far as you're concerned, right? <laughs> then you go into somebody else's house, one of your mates, <laughs> and you're probably seven. It's a little more normal, right? Yeah, and, and there's food there, and it's warm, and it's you know, and the people are friendly and kind, and 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 there's laughter in the house, and you think, hmm, there's something not right here, you know, but so. It was just something you had to tolerate. I mean, that's why, I mean, I left as soon as I could. As soon as I left school, I was gone, you know. I was, I, I, I left home, yeah. found a job, uh, went away and lived there. And um, and uh, it was, God only knows what may have happened. But I found music at the age of, you know. About 15, uh, I think. 15, 16. Yeah, I was... Uh, Probably late fifteen, I found music and bought my first guitar, and uh, and it became my friend, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It was uh, however bad or whatever, however I felt, you know, tired or angry or whatever, you know, I would pick up the guitar and everything just went away. You know, it was a good therapy for me, you know. Um, mm. And that's the way it went, because if I could get a little bit better and play a little bit more each day, it was something to look forward to, you know, when I finished working and stuff like that, you know. Um, well, it seems like it throughout the book, you kind of have this gene of, of a very solid work ethic. I think that yeah. uh, that comes from the beginning all the way to the end of Priest. Uh, your time with Priest uh, is that you know you were you were the guy that uh, that you know focused on the professionalism uh, and the and and having that uh, that guaranteed work ethic every day. Yeah, it's it's exactly that. I was never afraid of work, and and I would take any type of work on, um, and still would today. I'm I, I'd still like to, you know, uh, learn how to do things, new things, and stuff. You know, uh, whether it's something to do with IT or whether it's whether it's refelting a garden shed roof, you know, right. I'm, I'm that type of I'm that type of guy. I like I like a test, you know, uh, and find out how things are done. Um, well, but, how, how about writing a book? I mean, here here's a new experience for you. Well, yeah, that 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 has been an experience for sure because I didn't know exactly what I was doing or how things were done, but. Um, I was kind of interested in documenting my um, experiences and trials and tribulations, you know. Um, well, it's going a it's the richest story, that's for sure. Yeah, it is that. It is that, for sure. I, I didn't have a... I still didn't have a car. My first old banger, as we say, was I was 27 years old when I first had a driving license. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, at, at least at least in the UK, you got a little bit of a transportation system you can rely on. So. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't bad. I had my bicycle, and there was plenty of buses, but, um, yeah. you know, 27 it's pretty old to get a car, especially your first old bang, you know, yeah. 50 pounds, you know, right. and, it, and it's pretty rotten. But, um, yeah. but and, uh, and then by the time I'm kind of 31, 
you know, I've got a Rolls Royce, you know, and don't ask me how it happened. (laughs) No, I I am going to ask you how it happened. Christian Swain here, the Rock and Roll Archaeologist. We'll be right back with our show. This episode of Rock and Roll Archaeology is brought to you by the audiobook edition of Been So Long by Yorma Kalkinen, uh, read by the man himself. Now, diggers, all you have to do is enter for a chance to win an audiobook CD by going to macmillanaudio.com slash been so long. Listen as Yorma gives us a rare glimpse into his heart, soul, and his incredible journey through the psychedelic era of America. Hear never-before-told details about his addiction and recovery, relationships, and how he found his place in the world of music. With a foreword written and read by Grace Slick, an afterward written and read by Jack Cassidy, and bonus live music, this audiobook is a must-have for Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna fans. Again, enter for a chance to win an audiobook CD at macmillanaudio.com slash been so long. All right, let's get back to the show. But how did the book come together? Uh, as a youngster, did you ever think about being a published author? No, never. No. I'd been approached many times over the years, but I was never interested. I was always concentrating on the music thing, you know. And then uh, one day early last year, someone, you know, um, Mark Eglinton, the writer, who had just done uh, Rex Brown from Pantera, did his book. uh, And, of course, Mark being in the UK, it made it quite convenient. Um, So I just said yes, and we got stuck in and did it. Yeah, I think it came out really great. All right, so tell me about, and, and we, we just touched on this a little bit, but I think your first big musical experience around the time you're 15 is hearing Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction. Mm-hmm. And why was it that song that really spoke to you as opposed to, you know, maybe the Beatles a few years earlier well, or something like that? I think, um, I think it seemed like I, I was kind of... Uh a bit of a strange kid, really, because the thing is that um, I'm there in around about 1964 or something like that, and my sisters are listening to Elvis, Cliff Richard, as you say, the Beatles, uh, and the world's full of pop bands, the monkeys are big, you know, that everything's going on. But the thing is, I hated the whole thing, you know. Um, but every now and again, I would hear something, without trying, you know, and, and, and it, I was drawn to it, you know, and so I was drawn to things, you know, that were, um, that not too many people liked really, or, although that Barry Maguire song was a big success, but yeah. I just, there was just something about it that was dark and something about it that was intriguing and, you know, it was like the early Rolling Stones, the very early Stones, for example, very early kinks, like You Really Got Me. You know, there's a band called The Pretty Things, a band called Them. So pretty, you know, a, little, uh, a little more aggression, a little more uh, yeah, uh, dark, yeah. or, or what we like to call the black hat bands. Yeah, just that that darkness there, anything that was a bit, you know, I like bands that were ugly, not pretty guys, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't like the good-looking dudes, you know. I like bands that looked, you know, pretty, um, you know, pretty rough and tough, you know. Right. Um, 
and, and that's what I was attracted to, really. Mm. Um, but and I was I had this insatiable thirst for for stuff that we determine now like heavy stuff. You know, I, that's what I was going, always kind of after. And cause and then when when Jimi Hendrix came along and I got to see him in '67, uh, I think it was, and. Um, so, uh, you, you actually uh, got to see him a couple of times, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, probably seven or eight times, which was really, really cool. Yeah, and um, he appears to be your primary influence as a guitar player. Yeah, because the the thing is, uh, it was just, he had this magic ingredient. And the first time, I swear, that I, I actually heard something, you know, that, that uh, is to me, Heavy metal was Jimi Hendrix when he. Yeah, I saw him at Coventry Theatre and he opened up with, with uh, Foxy Lady and then go into Purple Haze. And I'm thinking this is absolutely the most brilliant thing, you know. Um, and it was great. And I just sat there and it was embedded in my mind. Yeah, it, it is hard for people to understand today what what a huge leap Hendrix created when he came upon the scene. Uh, first of all, he, he was an incredibly uh, talented guitar player with, with you know, uh, years of, of experience and chops uh, playing, um, uh, you know, in the Chitlin circuit and uh, for a variety of uh, bands, mostly getting fired through most of them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, developing this, this new sound that really sonically was just like nothing anybody uh, heard. Yeah. And then taking the showman's sh- side of things to a yeah. whole new level. He yeah. really, really did. Uh, because he could turn it on and turn it off at any time he wanted to, but when he wanted to turn it on, and I saw him do that, there was absolutely no better show on earth. Because, um, and I talk about me not liking the pretty guys, I mean, it was like, uh, to me, it looked fantastic, you know, but all of the girls were going, why do you like him? He's so ugly. I'm going, get the hell out of here, you know. I'm going, get out of here, you know, so... I mean, but Hendrix had everything. People, you know, girls that like the pop bands didn't like him. Right, and right, uh, right. and then, like you say, his guitar wizardry and what he could do there musically and the showmanship, it was like all-encompassing. It was like the be-all and the end-all, you know. And um, and that's what sat with me for for quite some years. And obviously, when I, I was getting into music, I was playing, I was doing things. You know, I never copied Hendrix, to my mind. No, I, 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 I would not say that at all. No, I never played his songs. I didn't want to be, you know, a copy of anybody. I wanted to be myself, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I was always enthusiastic about the, the fact that there had to be, you know, um, there had to be a, a niche somewhere that I could fit into uh, with a band that could create something new and different that was that was unmistakably, you know, had this heavy, you know, heavier and darker side to it. Hence, when uh, the possibility of being called Judas Priest, that was absolutely the best thing that ever, that I think, ever happened to me, you know. Right. Um, I just loved the way it sounded. I loved, loved the way it was written down. And I'm thinking... This is destined to be something important, you know. Which I believe uh, you, you saw you saw it on the side of a van one night as you were walking home, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, so let's talk about the formation of the band because first I find it really interesting 
that the when the band was finally signed, not a single person was an original member. Al Atkins actually started the group with the name Judas Priest, right? Yes. And you actually, I believe you auditioned, and then, but you didn't get the gig, and you went on to form a Correct. different band called Freight, right? Yeah, that's that's right. You, Al, Al was uh, had some other uh, other guys playing with him in a blues band called the Jug Blues Band, you know, and. Um, and unfortunately, the young guitar player, who was just 18, I think, um, he actually drove the van into a very, very sad and tragic story, yeah. uh, as I say in the book, into a, a telephone kiosk and killed himself. I, I don't know whether it was, I kind of think it might have been over a girl. I'm not sure, you know, why he would just take it upon himself to just do that, you know. But the band was so distraught and devastated, they immediately just, you know, uh, okay. never broke up completely. Yeah. And then Al Atkins wanted to put a band together with a bass player and a guitar player. And they had a bass player and drummer. They were looking for a guitar player. And the band was to be called Judas Priest. And um, and I auditioned for the band. I'm only just being a complete rookie, you know, a beginner. <laughs> and um, But I was enthusiastic. Um, but they still were predominantly going down the blues route, which I wasn't doing. I was playing all of these long improvised solos, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so I didn't get the gig. Um, and, and then uh, that that Judas Priest did formulate, they found a guitar player, but it didn't last very long, you know, maybe six months or a year. And then after that, Al Atkins came and saw myself, Ian Hill from the band, yeah. and, and, a, and a drummer that we had off the housing estate where we lived, named John, John Ellis, and... Uh, and Al came to the rehearsal rooms uh, in an old school and um, listened, heard us playing and said, could he join us musicians and form a band? And and straight away, obviously, I looked up to Al. He was older and had more experience. I said, yes, straight away. So we went up the pub, celebrated the new band and said, OK, what should we call the band? And I'm thinking... It's going to be Judas Priest. It's going to be Judas Priest. And I'm going, mm, I don't know. Um, what about this and what about that? And then, and then oh, I'm you didn't want to show your cards right away. Oh. Exactly. You know what? Well, what, why don't we just go with Judas Priest? That's not bad. Give it somebody else's, give it to the, the other, yeah, somebody else's idea. I, right, right, right. I was, exactly. I was terrified. <laughs> I wanted Al to think it was his idea, you know, to call it that. I was terrified. He would say, no. I'm not using that. Yeah, I'm going. Not, not that we've got. Again. Right, right. We've got to have that. <laughs> got to have it. You know. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, we went through some changes over the years. Did fantastically well. It was always good. You know, um, as a four piece. And then I found Rob. Yeah, but, but by '71, uh, you guys are a, a, a working band. And yeah. uh, I, I think it might be fair to say something else happens that really opens some doors for you guys, and that is working with T Tony Iommi's management company, IMA. It's interesting because you know where you guys end up is very traceable to the Black Sabbath branch of rock and roll, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yes, it, yeah. Eventually, I mean, Tony. Yeah, eventually, because like, yeah, the, we'll, and we'll get into how 
Judas Priest starts in a really different place the and then morphs into you know what we know as the classic uh, image and uh, uh, and feel and uh, musicality of uh, of the band yes it was um being managed by uh, a company that was owned by Tony Iommi, that was quite something, really, you know. Um, um, but, like I said, you we must have, have to felt go you were getting close, to, uh, you know, although I, I believe you never really met Iommi at that time. No, no. You must have felt was, like this was happening. That, you, yeah. know, you, you guys were getting gigs, you were starting to play around, certainly in the Midlands area, and, uh, and uh, things were picking up, huh? Yeah. But it was still tough financially because um, the booking agents, Tony's booking, you know, his, his agency did get us some gigs. But uh, it was pretty tough to keep going. Al had uh, a wife and a child and it was tough for him. So, you know, he bailed out and so did uh, Chris, our drummer at the time, which just left me and Ian. But um, then we quickly found Rob, you know, um, and then put together a four-piece, and I was really happy because Rob had such a vocal range that it was absolutely everything that I, you know, I could dream of, really. It couldn't have been any better. And I was convinced that we were really going to go places. And, uh, and we did as a four-piece. We managed to get a record contract um, as a four-piece. We did quite a lot of gigs. We went to Norway and Denmark and Germany uh, and did really quite well. Um, the other thing is the, the record company, which is a small company, they were saying things, oh, too many bands have got the same lineup, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Free, a lot of bands have got the same lineup. Will you have a, a sax player or a keyboard player? And I'm going, no way, no way in hell. This is a heavy outfit here, dude. You know, yeah. um, heavy sax, but, right. But I thought that. Um, I said, no, no, no. And I'm thinking, we're going to lose this contract here. You know, what what can I do? To, you know, And then I said, well, I'd be in a, agreement to have another guitar player because I had lots of, I had lots of ideas. That, uh, you know, not too many bands around with two lead guitar players. So it just happened that um, Glenn had just parted waves with his outfit. They just disbanded and he became available. But the idea to have two lead guitar players in a band was great because bands then, they had a lead player, you know, but they would have a, always have a rhythm player. And my idea was um, obviously two lead players could, uh, could whip so, so things up into... Thin, thin Lizzy at that time, right? Didn't they, they kind of yeah, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, but there was kind of Thin Lizzy... Well, I think they came a bit later, did they? Did they? Um, well, no, I'm lying. I'm telling lies. Thin Lizzy were around, <laughs> but they were, they were a three-piece when they had whiskey in a jar and everything like that because we actually played a couple of, go- uh, a couple of gigs with Thin Lizzy um, with the original lineup, which was just um, three uh, a three piece, the guitar player's name was Eric Bell. Yeah, okay. um, they were just a three piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they were around, but there was Wishbone Ash were around, but everything was kind of a little bit more kind of melodic and not not heavy. My idea was heaviness, you know, and um, and when we played live, that's what we would uh, to try to portray, and that's what we did. And you brought uh, Glenn Tipton in in about 1974, right? I, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but it seems that you and Glenn musically 
uh, were very tight, but not so much personally. Yeah, well, you know, we had a, a working relationship, and um, and, um, and like I say, we had many, many good years, but just like any relationship, whether it's man or wife or whether it's a company or whatever, you know. Now let's face it, being in a band is like being married to four other people. Well, Glenn, myself and Glenn would spend more time together than we did with our girlfriends or Glenn, were, or, or Glenn did with his wife. We, we, were, we, we were like a, we were a married couple, really. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure it worked both ways. You know, um, I would probably do things that would uh, get on Glenn's nerves and vice versa. You know, it was one of those things, but it was really quite competitive in a way as well. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, but it's um, and it went on, it went on, you know, and then later years, uh, Glenn found a counterpart in Jane, who worked for the management company, seemed to um, strike a relationship with her, and um, and then I kind of, it wasn't, I didn't feel it was quite one on one or a square playing field after I a while. Became a threesome, so. right? Right. <laughs> so, right. And so, those uh, never work out. I was up against it. Well, I'm kind of said, "Come on, Ian! Come on, Rob! Bit uh, support, yeah. support." But, um, but you know, like I say, I still have an immense amount of respect, and always will. You know, uh, even after death, for my um, bandmates, you know, we fought a lot of hard battles together. Yes. You know, in the trenches, and um, and we came through, uh, and didn't we do well? So Rob gave you your name, KK. How did that come about? Um, well, in actual fact, it was um, it was, uh, and I tell about this in the book. There was a there was a guy named David Cork, and his and his nickname was Corky, and he was an odd looking guy, but a good guy who was went to school with. He used to get us gigs from a telephone box. This is when we couldn't. This is before we could. We weren't. We weren't. I suppose good That's enough right. to the, have the transatlantic record recording stars. Judas yeah, yes, yes. yeah. <laughs> he, he would say, "Yeah, I've got this band, Transatlantic Records." Yeah, and I think it sounds like a record company, but there's so there's no such no such company. But anyway, guys in the so club would book, book. They they thought they were booking a pop band, and we yeah. turn up, you know. So this guy. <laughs> Corky did a lot of things, and uh, we owe him for that, really. You know, but he would come out on the road with us, and we had uh, an awful lot of fun and uh, good times, and um, and and it went on from there. So but that's gave, how we used to get out. Your name? He gave you the KK? Yes, he did. He said, "All you guys, you need an identity." You know, so yes. so um, and he had some photographs printed up. And underneath, and he gave me mine. He came to Rob's mom and dad's house the one day, and he gave me mine. And he and he said KK Downing on it. And I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So, uh, and that's how it happened, you know. And uh, and I don't know whether I should tell you what he put on Rob's, but I probably can because it's the way of the world now. But. Um, you know, um, oh, the queen, the queen. Yeah, yes. Rob, Rob, the, Rob, the queen of Halford, and we loved it, and we're all loving it, you know. Um, but um, we had to hide it at the moment from Rob's yeah. mom and dad, I think. But um, but Rob was always very cool about it, you know, and um, and everything. And we were, you know, everything was good. But it was obvious that Corky, my the idea Corky had for me was a good idea. But for, for the idea he had for Rob wasn't such a good idea. 
and um, and and then, lo and behold, uh, the band Queen appears. So who's to say what's right or what's wrong? Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe he could have gotten away with it. Uh, it was right at that period. I think uh, uh, the mid seventies. Um, uh, yeah. Sexuality is uh, is decriminalized in uh, in the UK. Uh, and 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 again, you guys on the, in the UK have much less of a issue with yeah, it than, it, than the Americans was, did, especially yeah. at the time. So. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a thing in the UK really, you know, yeah. any part of the UK. All of that was a, 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 a gladly a died off, you know, um, you know that that was that was died yeah, off. Yeah, I, really. I mean, in, in the book, it seems though though publicly, uh, Halford's preferences were in the closet. You guys all knew and and didn't care. All that mattered and all that should matter is that he is a fucking great singer, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, listening to Rob sing, uh, I, I knew that, you know, because I'd, I knew everyone, you know, uh, and my big hero at the time really was probably vocally was Ian Gillen. Yeah, yeah. You know, because of, his, because of his vocal range there, you know, yeah. and suddenly Rob could do everything, you know, that Ian could do. And there was only one direction we could go with Rob in the band, you know, and that was up. All we had to do was supply him with the, the material and the songs and, and keep being pro- prolific, you know. And um, and still to this day, you know, Rob still goes out there every single night. And, uh, and I know <laughs> yeah, it's incredible it's lazy, what he right? delivers up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, and, and for, for metal, you know, with, with, you know, those screaming guitars, you, you, you almost have to have that high tenor that sits on top of everything, uh, f- frequency-wise, uh, that just, you know, cuts through, uh, especially now two lead guitar players uh, here uh, in this particular band. So, yeah. so the first studio experience is, is kind of difficult. You feel um, rock and roll didn't capture the sound of Priest live, right? Definitely not, no. Um no, it didn't, because we would play live, and you can imagine some of those riffs, you know, Never Satisfied and all of that stuff. It was uh, so heavy, you know, um, when we played live. And it did when we were recording it. Um, it just got lost, dare I say, somewhere in the mix and in the cut. Um, and then we got the record home, and we were pretty devastated that it didn't sound like, we, like we'd been uh, listening to, you know, for the last, a uh, month or so. Um, so we were pretty disappointed with that, but it did get remixed later on by the uh, the, the wonderful, talented producer, Chris Tangaridis, rest in peace. And, um, and, and so um, it turned out pretty good in the end. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Sad Wings of Destiny and then Sin After Sin, uh, and I believe Deep Purple bassist Roger Glover produced uh, and certainly helped out with that, right? It did, yes, correct. Yeah, and then out of that comes Diamonds and Rust, and um, I know a lot of people don't know that that is a Joan Baez uh, song. Uh, Correct. And then by the mid-70s, you guys are, are looking up. Uh, the, the, for the, Everything's looking up for the band. Uh, you're now major label, big-time management. Um, you are, still look like five blokes from the five cool bands in Britain at the time, a little Slade, a little Blow, Bowie, a little UFO. I've seen that uh, old Grey Whistle Test episode uh, where yeah, yeah, looks, yeah. A, looks a little more Zeppelin than classic Judas Priest. And yeah. you're, you're actually the guy that 
is responsible for changing the image, or, or, or more importantly, giving Judas Priest the iconic image that, you know, became, you know, synonymous with heavy metalers in, uh, in the 1980s. Yeah, I think it was, um, as, as I say, ever, ever since I first saw Hendrix with all that flamboyancy and, that, and, and, and all of that and that, everything that was in my mind, and I suddenly made this uh, literally overnight decision that this is not the way I, I, I need to be looking, you know. Um, I like it, but it's not going, it's not, it's, it's not working, you know, with the name of the band and the music. And, and then suddenly, you know, um, I, I suddenly changed, really, into everything that was, you know, leather and studs as much as I could possibly get, really. Um, in about 1976, I think, um, and, um, and and I just wondered that if I donned that look, if the rest of the band would, would take to it, you know, um, uh, over a period of time. And, um, and, uh, as, and as I say in the book, you know, I spoke to Rob about maybe going to London and getting some clothes made, and, and we did. Um, we went down to this uh, establishment run by a couple of gay guys and uh, called Mr. S. And Rob had some leather stuff made as well, and he loved it. Um, and that's how it all started, you know. Um, and then quite quickly, um, we took on the image full, and by the time British Steel was born, um, everything was ready to go, and heavy metal was truly consolidated through Judas Priest at that point. And... And I do go into some detail about that in the book. Mm -hmm. And that was um, my happiest moment, really, because everything came together, really, um, on that, uh, with that record. Yeah, let's let's talk about British Steel. This is the moment Judas Priest becomes legendary, um, certainly here in the States. Uh, I know you guys have been working now for... Oh, uh, oh, about five years as a, as a recording artist uh, at this point. Uh, and, uh, you know, each successive record gets a little better. Uh, I think you get a little bit more uh, production uh, values. You're obviously learning to use the studio. Uh, and the songwriting's getting tighter. Um, and, and, and that's, I think that's what I hear. I, I mean, you know, living after midnight, bre- breaking the law, metal gods united, it, it, it's there. There are these well-crafted pop songs, uh, you know, um, the songwriting uh, with serious hooks everywhere, uh, all ready for for big-time radio play. So, was that the plan going in? No, not at all. It really wasn't. Um, we we did the album very very quickly, but we did write in the studio. Uh, you, you, know. you recorded at uh, Startling in Tittenhurst uh, Park, Correct. right? Famously Correct. owned by two Beatles. Yeah, yes, true. So maybe, maybe their pop sensibilities rubbed off on you guys a little then. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't think so. It was crazy because obviously it was uh, John Lennon's house where they did all the white thing, you know, painted everything white. Yeah, for uh, Magic, you know, right, right. Yeah, that's where he and Yoko lived. Uh, but John uh, sold it on to Ringo. Ringo owned it. And we went down in the cellars, you know, on one occasion. It was just full of Beatles memorabilia, you know, gold singles and stuff like that. And we just, 
didn't take any notice at all, you know. Anyone else really? would have gone I mean, on. today, come on, that, that that's like a treasure trove. Uh, yeah, it would, no, we, the, it would end up at the British Museum or something like I, that. I, I, I think about it now because it was all abandoned, all of this stuff <laughs> down in the, in the cellars. And, and, and none of us, we, we just closed the door and left it there. We were just, you know, wasn't interested at all. Probably worth a fortune now, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we did that, you know, and, um, you know, I have to uh, give us all credit, you know, uh, and uh, Glenn a lot of credit, really, for he would, he would, he would, he would stay up uh, 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 quite a lot of the night, really, banging that guitar out, keeping everybody awake to the point where, inevitably, we would have to get out of bed and jump down and, and jump in, you know, and... and uh, and continue the writing session, you know. So um, it it was good, good times. Let me bring up two bands of note that you toured with, um, and because they come up in 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 the in the book, and they're kind of your relationship that, with them is uh, seems to be diametrically opposed, and that's ACDC and Iron Maiden. Um, one one was a great relationship, and the other not so much, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Who knows? <laughs> Um, yeah, we did the Highway to Hell tour with ACDC. In actual fact, sadly, it was Bond. With Bond Scott's last tour, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty devastating. I mean, we were all on such a high, really, when the you know the tour ended. It was so successful, and uh, and it was great to uh, meet those guys, and they were so humble and gracious, you know, um, the way it should be, really. And um, and and I say it is. It is down to bands that you open up for to um, to basically influence the uh, newer bands and up and coming bands and influence them on how to behave and interact with uh, with uh, younger bands. You know because uh, it's not always easy. You know, I mean, on that tour we were driving around in a tiny little you know delivery van. You know, that's how we would go to gigs and. ACDC had this lovely luxury big coach bus, you know, and they they um, on the longer journeys, uh, you know, Angus and Malcolm would say, "Come on the bus with us," you know, it's a long ride, and we'd get on there and talk guitars and play guitars and stuff, and it's how to to be, you know, and we were very grateful. It, to it was have, quite collegial. Yeah, it was very grateful. We were very grateful how how we were treated, you know, and. And we had a realization that, you know, in our career that, you know, uh, there's there's rules ethically, what you do and what you don't do, you know, and we always prided ourselves on that, you know, we always looked after our um, support bands, you know. Um, And and I've read good things in uh, Rex Brown's book, you know, from Pantera. He says really good things about Judas Priest, how we help them and how we treated them. We used to play ping pong with them, you know, uh, but we would also make sure that they they got some beers, you know, because their bus driver was robbing their beers. And we didn't know that at the time. But Rex says that in his book, you know, but, you know, they were good guys and uh, we uh, always looked after the people that uh, would support us. Um, and we appreciated guys that did the same for us, you know, so... We knew how it worked, but there was a line that had to be drawn, really, you know. Yeah. Um, 
you couldn't expect a support band to go, hey, we want more stage, we want more lights, we want more sound. We're going, you know, we're paying for all of this, you know. We're, we're doing, you know. Yeah, we're, we're doing you a favor. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, your turn will come, you know, to be headline. But at the moment, the promoters and the fans are saying, we're the headline act, you're the support band, you know, so... You know, you can't go on there with a bigger show than us guys. It doesn't work that way. But your turn will come. Go out there. That's like we used to do. Just go out there and just play the gig, you know, and kick ass. Yeah, and then uh, get off the stage. Uh, and, uh, 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 yeah, and exactly. Apparently, and apparently <laughs> Iron Maiden did not take kindly to that. No, um, I think they, um, you know, but I think that... Iron Maiden did uh, their first UK tour um, w- with us, and they did their first uh, US tour with us, you know. So it was kind of a good leg up, you know, and um, and it was okay. We accepted them to do that, but um, it wasn't great, to be honest. Um, you know, it wasn't uh, great. They were um, causing some upsets and, from, you know, for reasons that shouldn't have happened because um you know it was just not the done thing really yeah you guys came up uh, learned the rules as the undercard uh became the headliner yeah. and expected uh, the um uh the yeah. opening act to you know treat uh, treat you the same way that you treated uh, the headliners yeah. when you guys were coming up uh, uh totally understandable um and you know maybe maybe you know Iron Maiden kind of is a little bit later than you guys they they kind of sort of have a, a little touch of the the punk attitude uh that was uh, you know a big thing in the latter half of the 70s uh, in the UK so so maybe they were bringing some of that uh, that attitude uh, with them uh, I know everybody gets along uh, today uh, in in all of that yeah. <clears throat> but I'll, I'll tell you this uh, personally I saw you both about the same time in about um, you know the the early 80s and there were a lot more girls at your shows than their shows so you know that, that should make <laughs> you feel good <laughs> so so through the 80s Judas Priest are the undisputable metal gods. Uh, And and I think out of the genre, um, uh, ACDC, Maiden, uh, Van Halen, Def Leppard are the bands that have stood the test of time. Um, for that class, that uh, and and I know a lot of a lot of metalheads are going to say, "Wait a minute, you're forgetting so and so or this guy." And I'm just d- d- trying to look at this from you know a hundred years in the future. Who's going to look back and say, "Aha, this is the this is the the first set of records that you need to start with before you dive deeper." So you you guys fit into that uh, in that um, that first sort of thing. So the the. The, the, these are the late 70s metal scene that, that ends up ruling MTV. So how do you like the video in Cocaine Age? The video in? The v- video and Cocaine Age. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I would have to say that um, MTV was, was good. It was important. It was great at the time because... It would, uh, you know, it would play stuff. It would play Judas Priest, Scorpions, Van Halen, whoever it was, you know. It was really quite versatile and, and it was good good viewing, you know. Um, and, and it even had Headbangers Ball and stuff yeah. like that and yeah. some good, good rocking shows. 
Um, so, yeah, I would have to say back there in the 80s, it was, it was good. Will we ever see a decade like that again in music? I don't think we ever will, to be fair, sadly. Um, but it was great to have been there and be a part of it. Um, you know, the big hair days, you know, it was girls, 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 dare I say. Um, it, was, uh, it was great times. And um, like I say, it was sad. How, how did it all end? Where did it, where did it all go? Um, it takes a lot of beating, really. Uh, I guess the Seattle sound came on the scene and it all changed. It was kind of all about not being so-called pretentious and uh, being, um, uh, you know... Uh, Some sort of authenticity or, uh, yeah. uh, you know, back to uh, kind of like uh, the old singer-songwriter, uh, but with electric guitars now, uh, maybe something like that. But, um, uh, yeah, so the 80s uh, were great for you guys. Point of Entry, Screaming for a Vengeance, Defenders of the Faith, Turbo, Ram It Down, and Painkiller. And each builds on the last, even adding synths, um, uh, which are everywhere by then. Uh, but then the 90s happen, as we're, we're talking about here. And we spoke about one drastic event to hit you guys, and that was the trial in Reno. And then in 94, Rob Halford leaves. And as we just talked about, uh, you know, the taste of music changed drastically. The Seattle scene changes everything. So... How did you guys cope with all that change? I mean, this, this all happens to you very quickly uh, in, in, in the matter of a couple of years. And in fact, I think Rob decided to leave, but it wasn't announced for a couple of years. Uh, so this all happens like, you know, about a two year period, right? Yeah, I guess, you know, um, strangely enough, throughout our careers, you know, there was, we were always in jeopardy uh here and there, really, the punk and new wave that was tough to ride that storm out. Yeah, you had you had yeah. uh, ridden that out, uh, but of course, you know, you guys were young youngsters still coming up in the scene, and there was this offshoot that uh, remained vibrant and was growing uh, as we've discussed. Yeah, yeah, um, it was. Yeah, the nineties was the change of everything. Really, you started to see bands like um, Pantera, you know. Megadeth, you know, uh, lots of bands coming through with harder-hitting stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, Pantera um, became really yeah, Metallica, quite... Metallica, Metallica, Pantera, Slayer, or taking metal to, uh, to uh, uh, a different uh, uh, area, area. Yeah, that's right, and that seemed to be um, what... Uh, a lot of the younger fans wanted, you know. Then you got bands like Fear Factory coming along, and and all that. Um, and Swedish death metal. Yeah, and all of that. And then, then you <laughs> where actual murders occur. <laughs> we, I, I was just getting ready to digest thrash metal, you know, the Metallica style. When next thing you know, it's death metal, this metal, that metal. There's that many metals around. It's hard to keep count. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you guys are one of the originals, so uh, you know, keep it keep it in the family. Uh, I say uh, that's the stuff that'll that'll stick around is the originators. So, yeah. but yeah, a lot happens. I mean, um, uh, it must have been tough to kind of navigate all of that, uh, and especially with Rob leaving. Um, you know, who you know you recognized uh, very early on that you know this guy was somebody to keep around. Uh, and uh, and it served uh, you well, but then you pick up uh, Tim Ripper. Uh, Tim 
Ripper Owens uh, from an actual Judas Priest uh, tribute band. So my first question is, how much royalties did you guys get off that Mark Wahlberg film, Rockstar? I can't remember getting any, to be fair. (laughs) You should have, because it's like your story, right? Yeah, originally they wanted us involved and and, and all of that, but um, that didn't come about. So I think they revamped everything to create something fairly bespoke and and cut us out of the deal. But, you know, um, you know. Have you seen? I'm sure you've seen it, right? Yeah, I think I did. <laughs> I did see some of it. <laughs> I did see some of it. Yeah. Um, well, we have we have another show called Real Rock, and and we we skewered uh, skewered it uh, pretty heavily. Uh, and yeah. uh, you know, let's let's face it, there, there is a passing resemblance to Priest, and there, and and I'd say there is also in Spinal Tap uh, as well. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would say you need to find mine, you know, <laughs> to where Spinal Tap creeps in when you do these type of uh, movies and projects, you know. It's, it's difficult, you know. Um, it's difficult when they do things like that, you know. I mean, I saw uh, some of the, the Def Leppard movie. That was kind of a bit strange, obviously, knowing those guys like I do. Yeah, yeah. In fact, so, so let's talk a little golf. Um, first of all, what's your handicap? I don't know. You don't Maybe know. Around. I, do you not live on a golf course? Uh, these days, probably around about 10, 10, 12, maybe, something like that, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, depends, I, on, uh, depends on the day. All right, right, right. Uh, you'll keep it to yourself. Okay, all right. Uh, so that means there must be money involved when you play. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. <laughs> of course. So I believe it's Def Leppard that's responsible for both you and Glenn getting serious about it, right? Yeah, those guys were on tour with us, and, um, you know, we kind of made a, a a bar lounge challenge to each other to play tennis and golf the next day, and uh, and that's what we did, and I had a lot of fun doing it, of course, because Joe and uh, and Sav, the bass player, they kicked our butts, and because uh, they're pretty good at it, so, but, yeah, so, you know, but a lot of people play now, I think a lot of people find that, when you're traveling around the world, especially in America as well, you get to Florida, Arizona, or, or virtually anywhere. There's so many beautiful places to go and visit. And uh, if, if you stay in the hotel room and, you know, you just prop up the bar and it's not good, you know, it's good to get out, you know, yeah. to, and do yeah. something really. Yeah. So we, myself and Glenn, we were always like tennis, fishing, you know, we would always be doing something really. On your off time, yeah. And that's good. Yeah. That's very healthy. And that probably uh, helped keep the band uh, together for, you know, 50-plus years. Uh, you know, as, did, opposed yeah. to, as opposed to, you know, somebody falling off the deep end and, uh, you know, uh, passing on into uh, uh, oblivion. So uh, good for you guys. Um, you know, now I find it interesting that you toured with, uh, with uh, Alice Cooper, um, but it didn't go well. And I think he was opening for you for most of it. Uh, and, and this is after Alice is, is, is a legend, so I can see where that's a little difficult. But, but I mean, Alice is a you know huge golf uh, fanatic. I'm surprised you guys didn't get on together on that. Yeah, no, I think Glenn played with uh, with uh, with Alice, but uh, he likes to play very early in the morning. Not my cup of tea, really. Uh, you know. Okay. Uh, you know, golf's a difficult difficult 
game when you're awake, <laughs> let alone when you're asleep. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, it is yeah. a mental game, yes. Yeah, yeah. Alice is, is absolutely a legend. Obviously, he's, he was big everywhere, you know. Um, I know we played uh, a couple of dates with him in the uh, in the 70s, um, big shows. Oh, um, you guys opened for him. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, then we played the Operation Rock and Roll thing. And uh, and I think Alice, uh, he closed two of the shows, his hometown and one other, that we closed all the other shows. Um, but, um, you know, as you, as you say... Um, not a lot of golf. Not a lot of golf there, so... Not, not a lot of golf. I very much look forward to playing with him one day. That, that would be cool. So is there is there an ultimate favorite moment during your 40-plus years in Judas Priest, one moment that just keeps coming back in nostalgia for yourself? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, there's gig highlights, obviously, playing with Zeppelin at Oakland Coliseum for two oh, shows. The green, that, right. yeah. That, yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was the, the most wonderful all-time festival, I think the... The U.S. festival, the US oh, the festival, yeah. San Bernardino. Oh, that was, oh, I was stunning. There. I saw you there. Yeah, yeah. and um, and needless to say, the live aid that was uh, that was a magical yeah, time. Yeah, was Phil in Philadelphia on the. Film. Yeah, to be to be a part of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been many good gigs, but those those three jump right ahead out to you know into my memory banks. There's been very special moments. Yeah, so OzFest in 2004, where Rob makes his return, the classic lineup comes back. Was that kind of like as much of a highlight? It it sounds like uh, some of that 80s magic returned. Yeah, it was good. That was was a a thrill to do that, you know. Um, We really, um, that was probably one of the things it was, because, um, in fact, I think it was the year before that, um, Sharon uh, called up and said, well, when's Halford coming back? We've got some gigs he needs to do, you know. <laughs> and um, and she made a good offer for us. And it didn't quite happen the first time, I don't think. But the next time um, she made the offer, I said to Rob, Rob, you know, um, that this offer was on the table and... Um, and it would be a really cool thing for us to do, you know. Um, by that time, we'd done a couple of albums with Ripper, and um, who's an absolute wonderful guy and a great singer too. We all know that. Mm-hmm. You know, he's an absolute treasure. But you know, it got to be a pain. We would come off stage, and fans would still say after playing, we would go out there and play a great gig with Ripper, and Ripper was incredible, you know, and. Um, the fans would still say, hey, KK, when's, you know, when's Rob coming back, you know? Uh, hey, man, is Rob coming back? You know, it was kind of, you know, and, and I think that um, Tim will accept, really, that, you know, there's, there is a voice to a band, isn't there, really? Freddie Mercury to Queen, Mick Jagger to The Stones, Bruce to Iron Maiden, you know. Um, there is a voice to... Predominantly, most bands. People would argue the Van Halen story, you yeah. know, um, or, or, or ACDC. I mean, uh, or, or AC, while, while Johnson's a great singer, you know, I grew up with the Bon Scott era, and so you know, I prefer the Bon Scott songs over yeah. the Brian Johnson songs. It's just, it's just a, a you know, because you know, we're, we're 
we're, we're yeah, creatures it, of our memories, you know? So. We are, yeah. So it's probably Dave for Van Halen and Bond yeah. for ACDC. Yeah. People get on board to the band later on and they would go, um, obviously, with uh, Brian or, you know, later members. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that, yeah. You know, that, that, that does happen. But for, you know, um, for the very, very, very most part, you know, it's um, there is uh, a voice that you relate to a band. I mean, you couldn't imagine anyone else singing with Aerosmith, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so, so it goes on, and it's kind of undeniable. It's historic. Um, people want the original voice, and kind of that's what happened. So Rob uh, and myself had a chat, and we had to and kind of thought that it was the best thing to do, and, uh, and it was just a case of getting... Um, Glenn back on board, and um, and that and that happened. So it went on from there. Yeah, and uh, and you guys returned. So we all have Sharon Osbourne to thank for uh, getting that back together. And then in 2011, um, you leave the band. Uh, I, I think it's is it actually Christmas 2010? There's a BBC yeah. documentary on metal, which is pretty disturbing for you. Is that? I, I, now, of course, things like this are something that's there's not an epiphany. It's it's a, a build of a, of, of years of uh, of um, concern or uh, unhappiness that causes uh, someone to say, "I need to make a change." And it, it, but but I think this documentary had something to do with it as well. Yeah, it was that. Obviously, the guys wanted me to do an EP that was, you know, um, just not a good idea, and I was really unhappy with that, you know. Yeah, after the uh, double album Nostradamus, right? Yeah, after the epic Nostradamus to do an EP, uh, you know, um, I wasn't happy with that because Rob had just released, um, in well, in the 12 months before, in the immediate 12 months before I left, Rob had released two albums and did a tour. So to, for me to do an EP was just not good. I was just I thought that was... Uh, Judas Priest is not an EP band, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of the last straw. There was a BBC documentary mentory, uh, about the origins of heavy metal, and I wasn't in it, which annoyed me to death, you know. Rob and Glenn was in it. Um, but... You know, I have to say I was there first, and when it comes to metal, you know, I don't know how they could make that program without me. You know, yeah. uh, um, uh, you and Ian are the the only ones that are yeah, we weren't in it. members uh, to I'm start sorry, with. Yeah, you so know? it was the the the, the uh, definitive program by the BBC. You know, um, you know, Black Sabbath. Obviously, we there was uh, bands like Budgie. There was Diamond Head, even you know there was there was lots of bands uh, in it, you know. Um, but uh, but uh, myself and Ian should have been in that program. Really, we weren't told how important a program it was going to be. Really, but mm-hmm. you know. But uh, but there you go. Yeah. So you now to to the public, it it it, it was presented as a retirement but in the book you dispute that can can you clarify for the fans that you didn't really retire but you know can you explain that to us yeah no i quit you know i did send in uh originally my thoughts were something strange is happening to me and i don't like how it feels you know but i could i could 
feel that I was either going to pick up the phone or I was going to do something rash. So I sat down and put pen to paper and I actually wrote a, uh, a gracious and, um, and, and it could be described. And I did use the word, you know, retirement. And I said that I was retiring from the business. Um, and I wanted to keep the peace, not burn any bridges. I wanted to do all of that, you know, and I did that. Yeah, which is your so, personality throughout the book. Yeah, uh, well, so uh, exactly. So I was, I was consistent with my personality. I did that. I thought that obviously I'm a, I'm a part. I'm still a director of the company. I'm still involved. I still, you know, uh, there's, there's still money flows through the company. Although I'm going to have to speak to these people and deal with them, you know, Regardless. and uh, yeah, yeah. everything. Yeah. So I thought this is the way to do it. I will be out there if somebody wants it. They can have it. Fine, it's yours. You know, I'm going. But so I did that, and um, but as soon as it was announced to the press that I was out, uh, a, a spark was lit, and and I just went over the edge, and I sent in a second letter saying, please ignore my original leaving letter, um, and I sent in a second letter, and it was. A bit more to the point, shall we say? Oh, the FU letter. <laughs> the, the FU letter, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it well, was. Yeah, you know, it I was the decade of, of, of holding things it, down. It was the FO letter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, and that was it. But you know, so that was uh, that was me uh, quitting. You know, and so. I went against every grain of my <laughs> normal yeah. personality, yeah. Yeah. and I thought, right, you know, that's it, and 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 that would explain why the relationship has gone uh, the way that it has with what's been said in the press, which makes me extremely unhappy to hear people like Ian, who was never did interviews before, saying things like, you know. Uh, None of the fans are missing KK and stuff like that, and it was just cruel and um, and unfair. Uh, well, you know, but I did say that. You know, I I did mention that. You know, that I'd been broken. You know, and and it was uh, the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life was hang up the guitar from Judas Priest, and I, I'm sure everybody can appreciate that, but. I got oh, pushed that. over. To, I got pushed over the edge. Yeah. Whether I regretted it or not, there was no way back, and I had to just suffer that. You know, I just had to suffer that. Um, but I was considering doing that to her. I was talking to Ian about it. You know, having a change of mind and doing it, and then suddenly it was released, and it was all too late, and it was over and done. The electric chair had been switched on, <laughs> and I was I was expired, you know. So it is what it is. But oh, I don't know. You know okay, time heals all wounds. I mean, uh, well, I I agree with that. I agree with that too. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be like it is. It doesn't have to be that way. No, you know, um, time passes. You guys people. are family. You're all family. You know. Yeah. 
you know, we all have issues with our family now and then, and sometimes we say things we regret, and sometimes you have to suck up things that somebody else says that uh, they regret, and, you know, you just, uh, you, you, you know, again, over yeah. a period of time, you, 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 you got to look back and say, wow, the good times sure outweigh the bad times, and I'm yeah. sure everybody in that band feels the same way, and especially now with, you know, Glenn, you know, having uh, uh, announced a diagnosis of Parkinson's here in the last year. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, you know, metal is, is um, uh, uh, of all the musical styles in rock and roll, it, it, it is the most athletic form. Of that, and uh, it, it's it's probably difficult to maintain the uh, the chops that are needed to perform it as you kind of get uh, into our uh, sunset years, wouldn't you say? And so we have to have other things that uh, mean things uh, to us. And you know, there's always just one Judas Priest, and that's yeah. Rob Halford, Glenn Tipton, Ian Hill, and Rob Halford, uh, and and everybody's just gonna always have that in their mind so the sooner everybody yeah. else in the band realize it the better off everybody's going to be yeah i think so there's a way to go about it and a way to do it you know um you know it might be the case obviously uh although i never play another note um but the thing is uh there's still a way to do um a friendship and business and to anoint that and put that together you know and, and i want to be able to uh to be able to if I run into those guys in a supermarket or at a gig or wherever, you know, um, want to be able to uh, to be, you know, reasonable and friendly and um, brother. And that's, yeah, that's how it needs to uh, to be. Really, we were we were pretty close, but I do feel disgruntled in the way that it's gone. You know. Um, for me, really, I was and very unexpected that the the guys would, you know, essentially turn on me in such a manner. Really, you know, when I've been very dedicated and loyal, so I never strayed. I never did anything except everything for the benefit of Judas Priest. Um, and uh, but I still have, um, and hopefully the guys will say the same about it to me. I have far more good things to say than the negative things about my uh, bandmates, you know, because we all know what we had to, we had to stand and endure and, um, and, and, um, you know, throughout our careers, it wasn't easy. Well, you've just written a book that uh, should, uh, they take the time to read it, I think would find uh, a compelling story of just, you know, KK's, you know, feelings uh, and, uh, and history and, uh, and love for more than anything else, Judas Priest. So, what's next for KK Downing? Book tour, more golf? Yes, yes, yes. I'm I'm busy. I've got loads and loads more people to speak to. I'm in London signing stuff on Thursday. I'm going up to Nottingham and stuff like that. I'm not sure. I think I might well be coming over to the states. Not sure yet. Oh, I'm good. speaking to the people. Um, and there's other countries in the world as well. So I didn't realize it was going to be so full on with this book, really. Um, but um, but it, it's glad. It's glad. I feel like I'm back on the scene again, speaking to people, you know, such as yourself. And, um, 
and uh, lots of people I've had a long-term relationship with, you know, uh, in one way or another. Um, it's good to be back on the boards, so to speak. Well, we certainly miss you playing in, in Judas Priest. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't imagine the band uh, without you. And I think as time goes on, when there is no band, because sooner or later, there's just going to be yeah. no band, yeah. like all things. And, uh, you know, it's going to be, you know, uh, if, if there is a, uh, uh, you know, a Mount Rushmore of uh, Judas Priest heads, you're definitely going to be on it. So, uh, thanks. KK Downing, it's been fantastic having you with us today on Deeper Digs in Rock. Thank you, Christian. You've been absolutely wonderful. It's a pleasure to speak to you and uh, and keep up the very good work with your amazing podcast. And um, and I'll try and get to tune in. That'd be awesome, KK. Thanks so much. certainly hope Rob Glenn and Ian do take the time to get KK's detailed perspective of his time with Judas Priest. I'm sure there'll be disputes, and each memory of all those years will be slightly different takes on the who, what, when, and where's. But what I took away was a guy just missing his brothers and hoping they can all find common ground to rebuild on before it's too late. Okay, one last thing. As, as I went back and listened to the Judas Priest catalog, I came at the songs much differently than back in the day. When I was young, these songs were edgy metal for the disaffected and alienated, or sonic fuel for the speed freaks and gearheads. It spoke to those kids in a big way. I wasn't exactly one of those, but I certainly appreciated the energy and spectacle that came with the music. I mentioned at the top that Priest wrote great pop songs. Re-listening to their hits floored me on how well-crafted and slick these songs actually are. Uh, I know, I know, heresy. But really, there are some great, memorable hooks and permanent earworm melodies that had me mimicking Halford's pseudo-operatic wail around the house in my leather-and-studded underwear. Too much? Okay, but you go listen and tell me I'm wrong. And pick up K.K. Downing's book, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest, from our friends at DeCapo Press. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Tweet me at Swain underscore Christian. Oh, and of course... Give up the rock
looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.